Welcome back to the Down to Earth podcast. Do you or a loved one currently suffer from Hashimoto's? Perhaps you may not have even heard of Hashimoto's before. However, it is a disease that continues to grow in numbers every year. Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition which impacts the thyroid. For those who are living with it, it can be quite challenging. This is what inspired our guest today to dedicate his life to helping people recover from Hashimoto's. Our guest today is Mark Ryan, an acclaimed author, Chinese medicine practitioner, and Hashimoto's expert who is forced to learn all about overcoming Hashimoto's from his own personal experience. Mark's book, Hashimoto's, An Integrated Roadmap to Remission, has helped countless people live more comfortably and healthfully with this condition. In this episode, Mark shares his valuable insight and findings with us on Hashimoto's and overall health and longevity. We also discuss preventative measures that people can try to take to help avoid the development of Hashimoto's and other health conditions. This is an extremely insightful and educational episode. Here we go. Welcome to the Down to Earth podcast. We're your hosts, sibling duo, Jonathan and Lorena. In this podcast, we'll be spilling the tea on all things health and wellness related. This podcast is designed to motivate you to take care of your physical, mental, and spiritual health. We'll be bringing on doctors, healers, fitness experts, business leaders, and innovators. Thanks for joining us in our mission of making the world a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Here we go. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Doing great, thank you. Awesome, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. We're both excited to chat with you and you know, big fans of your work. And I would love to start out by learning a little bit more about your background and what ultimately propelled you to pursuing the career that you're in and your journey to health overall. Yeah, and the initial impetus for me to get into my career path, Chinese medicine in particular, was the birth of my son, it was a particularly difficult experience that we had in the hospital. Uh, ended up being a, an emergency cesarean. And as many babies do, he ended up developing uh, elevated bilirubin. And during, so after he was born, they just kept poking him and poking him and bleeding his foot to get more blood tests. And it was going on and on and they just didn't seem to be doing anything. So I called the pediatrician we had at the time. The pediatrician said, yeah, I, he, that's very common. He's probably dehydrated, get him home, get him breastfeeding, get him some water, he'll be fine. Put him in the sun, what have you. So of course I listened to the pediatrician and I went to the doctors and they were like, no, you can't take him out. The bilirubin is too high. So I had to like fight with the doctors to take my son home and to do what obviously was needed to be done. And so that was very traumatic. The whole thing was traumatic. Got him home, got him water, got him breastfeeding, put him in the sun, then he was, he was totally fine. So that was like that first experience of like, there's gotta be a better way to approach medicine and healing and helping people. So from there, it was kind of like, I just started looking around, what, what are the other opportunities? What are the other you know alternatives? And I learned about Chinese medicine. And then the mother of my children at the time, we went, uh, we went to a Chinese herbalist and the, the experience of our next child was a complete 180 degrees differently. And I think partly because she got on to therapy with Chinese medicine, she took herbs, we, we had a whole different approach, it ended up being a vaginal birth, totally natural, 
no complications, nothing. The experience was like so radically different that I came away from that feeling like, wow, maybe there's really something here to Chinese medicine. And so from there, I really kind of really dug in and, and, and learned about it. Uh, I originally got a degree in uh, herbology in New York. And then from there, I decided I wanted to learn acupuncture as well. So I came out here to California and got my degree in, in uh, Chinese medicine. And uh, <laughs> that was the totally changed the trajectory of my life, that experience. I really commend you for being a health advocate for your son, because I think a lot of the times people will just listen to their doctors and take their word and kind of put their trust in the doctor. And that's not to say that they have bad intentions, but sometimes you know best what you need for yourself or for your children. And speaking up and questioning doctors is where what we need to do if we want to change the face of healthcare. Yeah, I don't think they had bad intentions necessarily, but I was just, it was just torture for me to see him continually getting his foot poked and poked and poked. And it was like he was obviously suffering and bleeding him more, measuring his blood for the 15th time was this obviously not accomplishing what it needed to be accomplished. That's all. Absolutely. You're 100% right. And, you know, that I guess was the moment that you were meant to encounter to sort of put you on this path of helping people. I think so. For yeah. sure. And then, you know, what were some of the biggest things that like surprised you once you started practicing Chinese medicine and once people started to come to see you? Like, are there any big misconceptions that you think most people have that you'd like to debunk? Uh, about Chinese medicine, you mean? Chinese medicine or just health overall, like some things that people might not be paying attention to that they should be paying attention to. Well, I, mean, I think one of the things that Chinese medicine is very good at is, is kind of having this holistic approach. I think one thing that really lacks in Western medicine and particularly training for many Western doctors is diet and the role of diet in life and, and in health. And I think that's really a fundamental foundational truth that a lot of people don't take seriously enough, but it has a huge, huge impact on your health. And it's an area where you can make such a difference. And yet it's so simple sometimes. I think people overlook it. I think you're 100% right. And what's interesting is like, there's so many factors of our health that are outside of our control, right? Like our environment, toxins, pesticides, all these things that like we have no control over ultimately. But one of the few things that we do have control over is what we consume. And that's why, you know, we should pay extra attention to it. And then speaking of nutrition, what are some of your key pillars to nutrition? Because of course it's individualized. I'm sure you work with your patients and they have their own unique way of doing things, but what are some key things that you think most people could benefit from when it comes to diet? Yeah. I mean, I think essentially I recently sent out an email to most of my patients because I read an interesting article, I think it was in Washington Post, about how to eat for your microbiome. And one of the, the big takeaways from it was it's about variety. It's really important not to eat the same thing every day. And it's also really important to eat really diverse diet of fruits and vegetables. And so it's not just enough to eat, make healthy food choices. It's also important to make diverse, healthy food choices. So I think it's really important that, you know, some of you go to that produce department in the in the store or you go to the farmer's market or wherever and look for the vegetables that you have not eaten for a long time or maybe never even tried and and try them. I think diversity in, in your diet is is really critical. 
And I'm glad that you said that because I do think a lot of people, you know, myself included, right? I mean, we have our favorite meals that are healthy, that taste good. Oh, yeah, I'm totally guilty of that myself. Yes. Have it, you know, every day or every other day. So I think it's a good little challenge to all give ourselves to. Especially if you're good at cooking it, it you're like, oh, I want to make that meal again. Exactly. Exactly. People will like meal prep the same thing for the week. But again, let's all make that our homework for this week, right? Try something new and try to mix it up. Yeah. So in, in that article, they were saying the there's apparently there's this large study called the Zoe Project. It's apparently the biggest microbiome study. You can actually get your microbiome mapped for free, apparently, from them. Although it's not free because they get your data. But in it, the, the head researcher said you should uh, shoot for 30 different plant foods a week. So that seems daunting, but... One of the things that was true was that spices count. So like an herbal spice mix, like Herbe de Provence, which is six different herbs, is six different plant foods. So think about that too. Like, so the more you, you spice things and, and flavor your food with different plant foods that you're adding more plant foods. Gotcha. That's that's good to keep in mind. And I love spices and I think most people do. So there you go. 30 different ones a week. Awesome. Now, it seems like at least hearing more and more people struggling with hormonal issues, thyroid issues, you know, Hashimoto's is something that I think is being spoken about at large now. Whereas, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, you weren't hearing about it as much. A lot more people are speaking about it now. Are the rates increasing every year? Is this something that's become more prevalent in society? Or is it just being spoken about more with this focus on on health and wellness now? Yeah, I think there's certainly more awareness about it. I think that autoimmunity in general is, however, on the rise. I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think a lot of it has to do with the also the rise of the internet and the rise of you know social media and sharing content and people becoming aware of it uh, a lot more. Because I think when I started out in helping people with Hashimoto's, it wasn't there wasn't that much information about it. And one of the things that was clear was that many people were not even getting tested when they got a thyroid panel. Their antibodies were rarely tested, so they weren't even really looking for it in a lot of people and even women. It's far more common in women. And so in men, like they were never looking for it, but in, even in women, they weren't looking for it very often. So I think now people are more aware and they're asking their doctors to look for it. And I think in general, the there is a rise in autoimmunity also. Now, just to take a step back for people who don't know what Hashimoto's is, can you explain mm-hmm. what it is? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, Hashimoto's is an autoimmune disease of the thyroid. There are a couple different autoimmune diseases with thyroid. One is Hashimoto's, the other is Graves' disease. Both are autoimmune diseases. And what that means is essentially that your your immune system, for some reason, has gotten confused in a sense and is flagging your own tissue as something that needs to be attacked by the immune system and, and that needs to be eradicated. And this is part of a natural process. The, the immune system, one of the, its roles is to remove dead and dying cells. So some level of elevation in your thyroid antibodies is normal, but too high levels show that your immune system is unable to kind of turn that off. So it's essentially your immune system attacking your thyroid. And in Hashimoto's, it usually leads eventually to hypothyroidism, where your body is not producing enough thyroid hormone and you're not getting you know, metabolic, metabolic signaling by your thyroid. Graves is usually hyper. I mean, it is hyper. Hashimoto's usually results in hypothyroidism. Awesome. Now, I'm curious to hear about your experience with diagnosed with Hashimoto's or your family's experience, because I think a lot of times in our culture, we kind of normalize weight gain, brain fog, bloating, fatigue. And a lot of times people aren't getting the accurate testing or think that that's what 
health is. So I'm curious about your experience and how you were diagnosed. For me, when I was first diagnosed, I, like, I recognized uh, I was having some of the classic symptoms of, uh, for me, like fatigue, pretty overwhelming fatigue and brain fog. Like I remember one experience in particular, I had a long time patient, I think I had this patient for like 10, 12 years, and they came to see me one day and I completely forgot their name. Like someone like I was very, very familiar with and I could not remember their name. And I was like, whoa, what is on my brain? So uh, there was that, I was really tired. And I also had a nodule that was visible on my neck that I was concerned about. So I went to my physician, my, my GP and asked him to look into it. And he did thyroid panel and, and uh, ordered an ultrasound. And that's when I was diagnosed. And what were the steps that you took then? Because I mean, obviously there was different approaches people take with trying to alleviate yeah. symptoms and trying to recover. Like how was your experience of sort of uncovering sort of the right protocol to, to helping you? Yeah, heal? so it was interesting. Like really he offered me nothing. <laughs> he basically, my, my antibodies, my TPO antibodies were 1200 when I was diagnosed, uh, which is pretty high. And all my other thyroid numbers were normal. So he essentially said, and, and you could see in the ultrasound, you could see that I had some nodules, but nodules are relatively common. They didn't appear to be cancerous or troublesome. So he basically said, yeah, we're just going to keep an eye on it. When it gets bad enough, then we'll do something. <laughs> so I was kind of left with like, so wait a minute, what you're saying is we have to wait for this process to continue and my thyroid to continue to get destroyed sufficiently before we're going to take any steps. Am I hearing that right? And it basically was like, yeah, that's basically what we're going to do. So I was like completely on my own. I had to figure out that's what sent me on the path of, of wanting to specialize in Hashimoto's because I went through that experience. I was like, holy crap, they have nothing, like literally nothing to offer me. So from there, I was did a lot of research and I just started experimenting with different things. Well, you know, getting off of gluten was one thing that was recommended. So I did that. I made some pretty radical changes in both my life in general and in my diet. So I cut out gluten, I cut out dairy, and then I found uh, the autoimmune paleo protocol. So I went the whole hog into that, which is a very restrictive diet. Uh, and I did that for almost a year, or maybe even a little more than a year. And then I also, I really had to make changes in my life. I was in a very stressful practice at that time. And, and uh, I ended up closing that and like kind of rethinking my whole professional life too. So I made some very, very profound changes in my life. I didn't make them all at once, but I, it was like sort of like peeling away the onion. I tried the gluten and dairy felt a little better. And I thought, okay, why not go all out? So then I tried AIP and felt a lot better. So I was like, hmm, this is working. And then, then I really had to address the stress, which I, I think is a really, really big factor for a lot of people, I think a lot of people don't take stress seriously enough. And one thing I understand about stress is it's really inflammatory and at the root of autoimmunity is inflammation. So uh, I reached a point where I, like, I couldn't ignore that piece either. <clears throat> so I, yeah, I did all of those things. Were there any supplements that you experimented with or nutrients or were you ever on thyroid medication? Yeah, no, I'm still not on thyroid medication, never have been. It doesn't preclude, it doesn't, you know, mean that I won't be at some point in my life. I still may have to be. I managed to be able to manage it pretty well without that. But there's quite a few different supplements uh, that I have tried and been on. 
some of the basics like vitamin D and glutathione, zinc, selenium. There's a product that I like with uh, that Apex Energetic makes called Thyroxyl, which has some thyroid glandulars in it and a mixture of, of things like zinc and selenium and some other vitamins and, and herbs that's very helpful for helping the thyroid produce thyroid hormone and to make thyroid hormone receptors more sensitive. So there's a lot of things potentially that are helpful out there. It really, you know, it really depends on the particular individual. Everyone is a little bit different. Everyone's Hashimoto's is a little bit different. That's one thing I've learned working with a lot of people with Hashimoto's is it's pretty, excuse me, it's pretty varied from person to person. Right. Absolutely. Now, have you seen your TPO markers go down? And if so, have you noticed clinical symptoms got better as the markers? Because some people are like, oh, well, the markers are high, but you can, you know, that's kind of negligible. So I'm curious if you noticed that your symptoms improved as your markers decreased. I have seen my symptom, my TPO go down. I've seen it fluctuate, it's going to go down, go up. Otherwise, I, I have not found with myself and all many, many people that I've worked with also much clinical connection between TPO levels and symptoms. Sometimes, you know, I think one of the things that's important to think about is that the antibodies themselves are not necessarily attacking thyroid tissue. It's an other part of the immune system. So you can have really high antibodies. Like, like that, my case, I think, is implemented that you can have really high antibodies, but have normal thyroid numbers because the other part of the immune system is still relatively calm. And on the other hand, you can have relatively low antibodies, but if that part of the immune system is really elevated and overzealous and aggressive, you can really have quite a few symptoms. So when it comes to Hashimoto's or just thyroid conditions, obviously we know it's more prevalent in females than it is in males, right? And then a lot of times we'll see it after pregnancy, women will get it or their mother or their grandmother, it's kind of genetic. So, but there's other causes. So I'm curious if you found any relationships because even with Hashimoto's, I've personally found like H. pylori, which is an infection or Yersinia, which is another infection that you can find in the stool. Sometimes that's correlated with autoimmune thyroid disease like Graves or Hashimoto's. So I'm curious if you found that relevant. Uh, very much so. I think there's a number of, like, I, I think Hashimoto's is kind of a perfect storm of things. So pregnancy is an important trigger sometimes because the immune system goes through kind of a pendulum swing during pregnancy to protect the fetus. And then once the baby's born, it swings back. And sometimes that can lead to that triggering that autoimmune response. In terms of other pathogens, Arsenia is one. Epstein-Barr is a common pathogen too. And herpes virus in general, I think, has been linked to Hashimoto's in a number of studies. And, and I've seen that clinically also. I think like the, the perfect storm really is like, it could be a pathogen. I think we mentioned stress already. Stress is also an important factor. I think diet is also an important factor and things going on in the gut. So H. pylori or other imbalances in the gut, even, you know, sometimes imbalances with gut bacteria. So like a SIBO or, or something where, where you're having bacterial overgrowth in the gut can really have a huge impact on the thyroid because thyroid hormone is converted in the gut also. And that can be a trigger, I think, too, for Hashimoto's. So I think it's a really important observation and good point. So then there are preventative measures people can and should be taking, right? It's not something that people should wait till it develops and then sort of take measures to alleviate symptoms. It's something that the proper lifestyle could potentially help prevent, right? Right, exactly. I, I think, you know, it's almost 
like behave as though you do have it. Yeah. <laughs> Even you know, if you don't, there's no real downside for taking the steps that we're talking about. No real downside for getting off of gluten and dairy potentially. I mean, it's inconvenient perhaps. And yes, you, I know we love some of those foods, but there's no real nutritional thing lacking from not eating those foods. There's no real downside to taking stress seriously and, and making sure that uh, you have stress relieving hobbies and that you are getting enough sleep, that you are taking care of yourself properly, doing sufficient self-care. There's no downside to any of those things that are preventative. So absolutely, we should be doing those regardless of we're diagnosed or not. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. I think that's a really good point. Now, what are some labs that people should get tested on and and how consistently? Because I feel like a lot of people probably get their labs drawn, but they're not as in-depth as they should be. And I'm sure a lot of things are getting overlooked. So what's your typical recommendation when it comes to labs? Yeah, I mean, I have like a pretty huge wish list of labs for the first time I see someone because literally every system of the body, every cell in the body has receptors for thyroid hormone. So it can have broad ranging impact on your physiology. So you need to look for it. So in terms of thyroid itself, I mean, we want to do a thorough thyroid panel. If it's your first time testing, you definitely want to test the antibodies. Most physicians will order TSH and maybe T4, and that's it. I think we want to order the antibodies. I also like to look at what, how is the thyroid functioning? So we look at total T3, total T4, free T3, free T4, <coughs> excuse me, and the reverse T3. All those things help if you understand how to read them, they help under, you to understand how the thyroid is functioning and how it's producing thyroid hormone, both the free fractions and those are attached to the proteins. So for thyroid, I, I recommend a really thorough thyroid panel. And then we wanna look at the other systems that are impacted by the thyroid. One of the most important ones is the liver. So we wanna do a lipid panel, look at what's going on with your cholesterol, your triglycerides, uh, and what have you. How's that being impacted? Because hypothyroidism can cause cholesterol metabolism to slow. So a lot of times people who are have Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism also have elevated cholesterol for that reason. So we want to look for that. We want to look at the liver itself. Do a liver panel, look at the liver enzymes. How are they doing? How's the liver functioning? Look at the kidney. Don't do a kidney panel. See how that's functioning. It's important to make sure that you're not anemic. So we want to do an iron panel and uh, look at red and white blood cell count to see how that's being impacted. We want to look at the sugar. Blood sugar can have a tremendous impact the rest of the endocrine system and the thyroid itself too. So we want to look at your fasting glucose, your hemoglobin A1C, look how that's doing. And then also because autoimmunity is an inflammatory condition, we want to look at inflammatory markers. So we want to look at vitamin D, homocysteine, and uh, C-reactive protein. And I think this is really important for people to hear because a lot of the times if you go to your regular doctor, they're really only going to run a TSH right. and you're not going to get a lot of information on you know, your TSH value could be normal and that's really kind of a wide range also. So it could be normal, but not optimal. And then you could have an underlying autoimmune condition that you don't know about. And you're just waiting like a ticking time bomb for that thyroid to get thrown off. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. The TSH can, there's all like not a lot of agreement to like, what's the normal range for TSH, right? Like there's some, some labs it's, it's 0.4 to four, some it's 0.5 to five. Some the functional range actually it's 1.8 to 3 is supposed to be ideal. So like there's not even a lot of agreement within professionals and endocrinologists for what the best range for TSH. Absolutely. And I think it's also 
looking at a patient's symptoms while also looking at their TSH and as long as they're falling within, because a lot of people feel really good between like a one and two TSH. Now, when it comes, if any of your patients are on thyroid medicine, do you have them skip their medicine when they get their blood drawn? Because I feel like there's a lot of controversy around that. I generally do not have them. I think it's important to, when you're testing the thyroid, to be fasting and to test first thing in the morning. You can have them skip medication if you're looking for something in particular, whether or not they're on natural desiccated or on synthetic can have a different impact on the blood test results. But generally, I I think the more important thing is that they fast and that they test first thing in the morning. Okay, good to know. I'm also curious to know if you've seen the cases of Hashimoto's rise after COVID, because I did see that COVID has an effect on the same receptors that the thyroid has. So I'm just curious if like anyone, you know, had no thyroid issues and then had a COVID infection and then found out that they have. I mean, I've seen some of that. I think it's still early. It's, you know, we're still kind of in the COVID's not gone yet. So I think in the coming years, we're going to know more about that. But I mean, my general inclination is to believe anything that attacks your throat and your respiratory system is potentially going to have an impact on your thyroid. So one of the things I've seen is the research on people who have tonsillectomies. People have their tonsils removed to have a higher rate of Hashimoto's. And people, like I said, people had Epstein-Barr virus, it affects their throat, they can have more Hashimoto's. So having an upper respiratory condition certainly can make you more vulnerable for thyroid issues. I would say it just, it just makes logical sense. Very interesting. Now, you spoke a lot about stress and the impact that stress could have on, you know, potentially developing Hashimoto's. So, you know, people hear stress, they think traditional stress, obviously, from life, from work, you know, family, things going on. Um, But there's other things that put our body in stress as well, sometimes good stress, right? So what is your take on like really extreme vigorous exercise when it comes to hormone health and potential, you know, prevention or maintenance of Hashimoto symptoms, um, as well as fasting, because fasting is something that's obviously become very popular, uh, but it does for that time period, put your body into stress. So how does that impact? Yeah, great, Um, great question. I think, you know, I think one thing to understand just big picture is that having autoimmunity itself puts you under a lot of physiological stress. So one of the most common complaints I hear from people with Hashimoto's is that they have very low tolerance for additional stress. So it's often like they are very easily overwhelmed. I think one of the reasons that my theory is about that is that they're already so maxed out on physiological stress that emotional stressors are really hard to handle. Normal emotional stressors that for other people might not be a big deal can really be a big deal when you have autoimmunity. So that, that I think that in and of itself is really important to understand. With regard to exercise, I found this kind of like a bell curve of exercise benefit. Meaning by that is you're not doing enough, you're not really getting benefit, but there's kind of a sweet spot. It's kind of like a Goldilocks zone because if you do too much, you can get to a point of diminishing returns where you're actually doing more harm than good, I think, because of that stress. So it's really critical with exercise, I think, to find the top of the curve where you are right now. Some people that's really hard for if they're historically have been athletes and, and been very, very active in their life, then they get Hashimoto's. Sometimes it's really hard for them to wrap their mind around that and to dial things back. So uh, I think you can build from the top of the curve and do more vigorous exercise, but you can't start out 
doing too much vigorous exercise without consequences. So I think that's a very, very, very important thing to understand. One of the things I like for that, the way to kind of test that is to, there's something called the seven minute scientific workout that's basically hit high intensity interval training, uh, a small circuit of high intensity interval training. It's a nice way of finding the top of the curve for people. So I often do that with uh, people who are trying to find like where their exercise sweet spot is. With regard to fasting, my experience with that is that it really depends on your blood sugar. For some people who have, who are hypoglycemic and who have real problems with, with too low blood sugar, I think fasting is really not a good idea. For those who are insulin resistant and who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think fasting can be very beneficial and helpful. So I, I think the first thing to determine when you're making a decision about fasting is what is the current state of your blood sugar stability? And the first thing you should do is stabilize your blood sugar before you start fasting, if you're hypoglycemic in particular. Would this be for both males and females? Both or- males and females, yes. Okay. So if a female is already exercising vigorously at her baseline and she's not hypoglycemic, you don't think it would necessarily have an impact on her thyroid function if she was incorporating some fasting or vigorous exercise? No, not necessarily. I think it could be beneficial. Okay. And what are your views on things like ice baths? So like ice baths have become really popular and that also temporarily puts your body into a stress state. I love them personally and I feel great from them, but I feel like when anything becomes super widespread and super trendy, you see everyone sort of just doing it, even if they don't feel great from it. And even if it doesn't complement their constitution best. So yeah. what are your views on that? I'm generally in favor of it. I think it's a good thing to do, yeah. uh, but I agree with you. Like, I think it's like what you just, you just made a good comment. It's like, really like how does your body react to these things? Like pay attention to that. That's important. Like with the exercise too. It's like, if you do vigorous exercise and you're wiped out, then that's telling you something. Like listen to your body because your body often has the wisdom of what is the proper, what's the proper amount of things for you to do. You're right. You're right. Now, I know we spoke about the thyroid a lot, but I'm curious to see, because I always think of like the thyroid, the adrenals, and then either the ovaries or the testes is like a three-legged chair. And if one is out of balance, the other ones kind of try to compensate and those often fall out of balance. So I'm just curious if you found the connection with, let's say a patient with Hashimoto's, if she's having irregular periods or elevated cortisol, like if you've seen that correlation and you think it's wise for people to test those hormones as well. Well, very much so. I think the the endocrine system is not a closed system. They're not; these things are not independent of one another. All of the hormones within the endocrine system have feedback loops. There are positive and negative feedback loops with all of them. So the blood sugar has a tremendous impact on thyroid hormone and thyroid function. And similarly, thyroid hormone has a tremendous impact on insulin and insulin function. And cortisol has a tremendous impact on insulin and can really impact the thyroid. So all of these things are very much part of an entire system. So yeah, I think it's very, very important to evaluate them. And also that can sometimes be a really helpful insight into how to treat too, because something like, you know, really taking blood sugar seriously can be a a fulcrum to a really successful outcome if people are really focusing on that, because it has this big ripple effect that's kind of larger than you might realize. 
Absolutely. But I think that's where the hard work is for sure. And sometimes it's it's to take a, you know, Synthroid and be done. But I agree. I think going back to the basics and looking at your lifestyle, your diet, because there's a lot that you can control with those factors. Right. And, and some people do take Synthroid and they are done and they're fine. But unfortunately, a lot of other people are not. So we have to have other things to turn to and try when that doesn't work. Absolutely. And again, I want to talk a little bit more about stress because I think most people would strive to have less stress in their lives, but that's not always possible. So what are your, some of your favorite ways to sort of help the body and the mind de-stress? Obviously, I mean, I definitely want to do a little deep dive into acupuncture. I find that that helps me tremendously when it comes yep. to stress, but are there any other lifestyle hacks that you think are really important, even if you have a very stressful job or stressful life, just things that you could do to sort of balance it all out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned acupuncture. That's certainly one. I think meditation itself is is also really helpful. I recommend that for people all the time. Getting out in nature, I just think in general is very beneficial and and helpful. I think getting enough sleep and just generally being conscious of natural circadian rhythms and and living within them to the best of your ability uh, is also a really important way to help mitigate stress. Yeah. You're totally right. And I think that ideally, you know, most of us would figure out a way to do that. But what we see a lot of in our modern day world is it's it's quite the opposite, right? right. We're not supported in the modern world always in that area, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that another important thing to note is that you're never too young to start, right? So I feel like a lot of people when they're teenagers or in their 20s or 30s, they're like, oh, you know, what I do now doesn't matter. I could be out till four in the morning and then sleep till three o'clock in the afternoon consistently. Obviously, we all have those nights and those days, but people think that they're like indestructible until they're not. So it's never too early to start. Until they're not. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So having these lifestyle habits, like, you know, stay in some weekends, go to sleep, get eight hours a night, do these things. And, you know, it pays dividends for years to come, right? Yeah. And think longer picture. Like you're not always going to be 20, you know, like eventually you're going to be in your 40. I'm going to be 60 in a couple of weeks, you know. Congratulations. Thank you. So life is marches on and, you know, it's like decisions you make earlier. It's like, a you know, your life is like a huge ship, you know. If you can change the trajectory, even a few degrees, 10, 20 years from now, that's going to be huge. It's going to have a huge impact on your health and well-being. That's great wisdom. You're 100% right. And there's a Um, big push towards that as well now, I think, which is awesome. There's a big push towards, like, you see a lot of young people really focused on their You're seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think compared to when I was younger, I think it's people are a lot more conscious than now. I'm really happy about that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely do see a lot of that. Now, I would love to talk a little bit about Chinese medicine, you know, mm-hmm. acupuncture, herbs. What are some of the main things that you think this helps with, right? Like some of the main symptoms people might be experiencing where, you know, acupuncture might come in and really help them. I personally just do it for maintenance and I feel great from it and I look forward to it. But what are some of the main symptoms and, and issues that people might be having that they might benefit the most from with acupuncture? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we were talking about stress earlier. We've been talking about stress a lot, but I think acupuncture is really, really helpful for stress. And I think one of the things that people don't always realize, but I see a lot of patients come to me for this is people with anxiety and depression, like for uh, emotional challenges and emotional issues, acupuncture is surprisingly helpful. So, I mean, uh, I think this is an area 
that I would definitely encourage people, you know, we've all been through a, a, a cultural trauma with the pandemic and, and this has been, you know, a tough time. We've seen a lot of rise in, in, in addiction and, 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 and mental health challenges during these past couple of years. And I found acupuncture to be really, really helpful in, in helping people recover and, and get through that. Even, you know, things involving trauma and, and uh, you know, difficult experiences of that. So uh, I think that's an important area. Of course, any muscular skeletal type issue, uh, acupuncture is very helpful for. So joint pain or muscle pain or, or any kind of pain. And, you know, it's because it is helps with stress and has this kind of balancing impact. I think it can be really helpful with hormonal issues as well. Now, when it comes to acupuncture in an ideal world, how often would patients come in and get acupuncture treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends what's going on. If you're having an acute problem, I generally recommend more treatments uh, at the outset. So, I, you know, if someone's coming to me for the first time, I'd say, well, let's do say, six sessions once a week to get started and then maybe back off and do it every other week. But uh, I generally recommend for an acute type issue or even, you know, for if you have a flare up at some point and, and you're trying to get tuned back in again, is to do it once a week for, for you know, like four to six weeks uh, to get kind of back. And then for maintenance, some people like to come once a week for maintenance. Some people come a couple times a month. Some people come once a month, something like that. But I, I encourage that as well, because once you develop that momentum, you really can help maintain it by, by regular treatment. A hundred percent. And then in addition to acupuncture, do you also like incorporating things like cupping? Does that also play a part in mm -hmm. a lot of the treatments that you do? Yeah, I'll do like when people come to see me in the, the clinic where I work in Silver Lake, I do uh, acupuncture and then I do body work also. Mm -hmm. So often I'll do cupping, do some twina or, or massage. Twina is like a Chinese medicine version of massage. So we'll do that. I, I find that the body work and acupuncture are really wonderful together. Yeah. Definitely. And then another part of Chinese medicine, of course, is also herbs right. and, you know, herbal medicine. So what are your views on that? Are there any specific herbs that you think most people can benefit from, or is it something that you really cater to, you know, the individual? Well, I mean, the beauty of Chinese medicine is we can tailor to each individual person formulas and treatment. So that, that definitely isn't an opportunity there for, it's another healing modality that's really, really effective. I think in general, there are a number of herbs that are really helpful. Like I think cordyceps is a terrific herb that I recommend for a lot of people. Like some, even some things that are simple that, that, you know, are commonplace like ginger, I think is a great herb. It's really helpful for digestive things. It's really helpful. I mean, during COVID, it was one of the things that in China that they were giving ginger and, and licorice root was a preventative that was quite effective. I like chrysanthemum flowers myself personally because I have thyroid eye issues and chrysanthemum flowers is wonderful for both the liver and the eyes. I mean, there's just so many great herbs, but those are three of my favorites. Now, something else I want to speak with you about is mindset, because I feel like, you know, you firsthand experienced, you know, getting this diagnosis, feeling these symptoms, not being given a lot of direction into which course of action to take. How important was your mindset at that time? Because I feel like a lot of times if somebody has a health challenge or just a life challenge, they let that defeat them. And sometimes the anxiety of it makes it a bigger issue than it even has to be. And you could even feel that physiologically. So what do you think is the right mindset to have when it comes to overcoming a health scare or a health issue and really learning not only how to live with it, but how to sort of thrive through it and still live yeah. your best life? 
Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think it's a very, very important mindset. And and you're right. Sometimes it's it's hard. It's like it's scary. Like you get a diagnosis of especially with Hashimoto's. Like when I first got back, I had no idea what it was. And like the doctor wasn't very helpful about what it was and basically like offered no clinical solutions. So I think people often have that experience where like they're like, Oh yeah, you got this, see ya. <laughs> I'm like, well, wait, what wait, what what do you mean? I have what does that mean? So yeah, I think that that's really important is to not get overwhelmed by the term. Nice thing about Chinese medicine is we look at things because they're kind of like imbalances. We don't necessarily have disease names as much as just kind of patterns of dysfunction. That's kind of sometimes that's a little safer way to think about things. But I think in terms of mindset, I had this one exercise that I really like for people. I call it the I don't know, the Trinity, Holy Trinity, something like that effect. But there's three things that I think are really important. One is to have a vision, first of all, like we want to put an intention in the universe of like, okay, I'm, I can heal this, I, I can get better. I, and then like, what is that, you know, we all have certain challenges. So what does that look like for you in, in specific terms? Try to be specific about it. So, you know, for example, for me with my Hashimoto's, well, I wanted to have more energy because I was fatigued all the time. I wanted to get my brain functioning again and get mental clarity back. So those are two things that I, were important for me. I wanted to be able to exercise more, you know, so I try to, when you have a vision and create a vision of your healing, try to specifically think about what you want to have happen. So that's the first part. The second part is gratitude. Be grateful for things in your life. There are always things that you can be grateful for, even when you have health challenges, even when you have difficulties in your life. If you look, there are always things that you can be grateful for. Make sure you take inventory of them and, and don't forget them or lose sight of them. And the third thing I think it was really important, because sometimes I found that I like was had this vision and then I I was grateful for these things, but then like I'd get overwhelmed by things and and forget. So the third thing I realized that was really important was like take inventory of the little wins, the little things, your little victories that you have. Sometimes like it's a minor thing, like I got out of bed and I did some exercise this morning, or I went for a walk this morning, or like I didn't freak out when I heard that news or something. Sometimes like it's, they're not huge victories, but they are victories. So it's important to recognize them. So I think those three things, have a vision, have gratitude, and make sure you take inventory of your little victories along the way. I think that, that those three things, if you could do that on a regular basis are really, really helpful. No, I was saying you're 100% right. I think the little wins are super important when it comes to health, when it comes to life, when it comes to business, anything. I think people assume that like success comes in great strides. And sometimes it really is those small right, little things. Sometimes it's just those things. And it's just like you're not, you don't win the lottery every day. <laughs> well, let's hope, well, today, let's hope well, we let's did. Because it's let's 1. 1. billion. <laughs> <laughs> but I think also when it comes to autoimmune conditions, too, I think a lot of the times people assume, like, they tie themselves to that condition, right? Like they say, like I have Hashimoto's and I think it makes it sometimes a little bit harder to heal when you identify yourself as having that condition. Mm. So I think separating yourself from that as well. That's really, yeah, I think it's a good observation too. You're right. It's easy to, especially if you go online and you join the support groups and everything else, everyone else has it there. And there's like this sort of community of it and you kind of bond with those people it's like this whole larger sense of of identification with it but you're right it's important not to let that define you or or limit you too because that you know you can be that can be part of you but it doesn't have to to only be you absolutely yeah now 
Are there any books, documentaries, series that have helped you along your health journey? Because like you mentioned before, you were sort of like alone in this, right? You didn't have anybody navigating you or giving you direction. You were sort of doing your own research, trying things, experimenting, seeing how you felt, and then you know sticking with those things and eliminating the things that did not feel right for you. So are there any good resources that you could share with us that have helped I mean- you? My books, I recommend to everyone. Well, of course, that this is the time to talk about that. But, yeah, but but uh, before that, before I wrote my books, one of the most influential books on me was a book by Dr. Tatis Karazian called "Why Do I Still Have Symptoms When My Lab Tests Are Normal." It was like, oh my God, he wrote the book for me. Like he he is absolutely brilliant. I ended up studying with him for many years. He's gone on to write more books and be tremendously influential. And 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 uh, I think he's an absolute genius. So I highly recommend anything that Datis Karazian writes, regardless of the subject matter. And there are a lot of other good, for Hashimoto's, there are other good people like Isabella Wentz has a terrific book and, and she's a great resource. There are other groups out there that are helpful. The author of the autoimmune paleo group named Mickey Trescott, her book, she originally wrote the autoimmune paleo cookbook, which was super helpful when I was changing my diet. She's since gone on to to kind of broaden her approach, not just focus on autoimmune paleo. Sarah Ballantyne, I think, is is really brilliant and and has lots of great things to share. So there's a lot of good stuff out there now that wasn't out there when I was first diagnosed. So it's, it's I encourage people to explore that. I think too, just like in terms of mindset, I think there's some really terrific tools now. Um, I like Insight Timer, that app I think is great. There's other apps too that are helpful. I like anything that that helps with mindset, I, I find helpful. Yeah, I do too. Mindset is everything. And then you have your books as well, which I'd love for you to share a little bit more about. Yeah, I've written two books published by Hay House. One's called How to Heal Hashimoto's, an an integrative roadmap to remission that really, it looks at sort of the five elements of thyroid health. So I look at the the five elements from Chinese medicine viewpoint. I, I use that as kind of lens and then talk about how the thyroid influences all those different systems of the body and, and, and how it impacts them and how hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's affects that. And there's lots of uh, solution in that book. And a lot of it, I explain both. I look at the uh, Western physiology and I look at Chinese medical physiology and, and help you really understand, help people really understand how, what's happening to their body. I think that's really, really important. That's always been an important part of the work that I do is try to teach people like how to understand what's happening in their body because I was so frustrated by having no help from any doctors <laughs> what was going on with me. So I think that's a very, very important part. And my second book is the Hashimoto's Healing Diet that really looks how to, at, at how to use food strategically, like in different situations, how to change. One of the things I learned sort of the hard way is that having a really restrictive diet like the autoimmune paleo diet can have consequences that are not good. And one of those consequences is that um, you can end up degrading something called oral tolerance, which is your body's ability to adapt to different foods. And sometimes people who really stay on those restrictive diets for a long time can actually develop more food sensitivities, not fewer, which is just like really cruel and unusual punishment because people try really hard to not eat all these foods. And then after a period of time, end up having more food sensitivities. So kind of brings us back to the point we made earlier about uh, variety being important and, and uh, uh, diversity being important in your diet. And, and uh, that book really looks at how to approach different problems with diet. Absolutely. That's interesting because I also feel like a lot of people now with their kids, 
I feel like people have kids and they raise them on very restricted diets and like they already will tie them into a certain lifestyle, which it's interesting that you mentioned that sometimes like not consuming something might hurt us in the long term because our body doesn't know how to process it. So I feel like. Right, right. So that, that oral tolerance is really dependent on exposure. So yes. when you eliminate the exposure, then you're, you're kind of degrading that natural it's a form of immunity, really. It's a exactly. immune system learning how to adapt. So, yeah, everything has con- you know, all the sins we make have consequences, even though it's for some, it, it's good to restrict kids from eating crap for sure. Of course. So of that's course. not a bad, that's not a bad impulse or inclination. Just we want to be careful not to restrict too much. Absolutely. Now, speaking of kids, I'm curious if there's a piece of health or wellness advice that you would give to your younger self. It's just the importance of sleep. I just, I never understood when I was younger how important sleep is. Uh, so I would. How many hours do you I would encourage my younger self to not be so crazy and stay out so late. How many hours do you try to sleep nowadays? Uh, I try to get seven at minimum. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty good. Six or seven, I'm pretty good with. I mean, Eight is ideal. Sometimes I can't always get eight, but uh, I find seven is a kind of sweet spot for me. How is your sleep hygiene? Is there anything you do that you think helps you have better quality sleep? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to restrict computer usage and cell phone usage after a certain time. Like I I really try to make it a point to read at night Um, just because that gives, I I love reading and and it's, I, I think it's, so beneficial for a variety of things, your brain and, and learning, of course, but it's also a way for me to stop with the computer and the phone and other things. So it's like, I have to sort of physically put a separation yeah. there in order to do that. I know it's tough because that's how, you know, a lot of people nowadays relax or at least think they're relaxing, right? Being on their phone for most people. That's true. Yeah. But get a good book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Any like quick business advice that you have? Because you took something that you were passionate about. You took something that you really felt there was a need for and which I commend you for. It's not easy to do that. And you also let that become your career and built a great career from it. You wrote two great books from it. So any advice that you have for people out there who might have this like burning desire to do something that they really feel there's a need for, but don't necessarily know how to start? Yeah. I mean, I I think the one thing that that I think made apparent and really taught me was that the niche is a really, really important thing. You know, I think it's important to go, what is it, you know, go deep and narrow rather than wide and, and shallow, yeah. you know, so, so choose whatever it is you're excited about, commit to that and really become an expert in that thing, you know, whatever it is, it could be, you know, skateboarding, I don't care, it could be, pencil sharpening, whatever, but like become the expert in that. And, and that you'll, there won't be many to compete with. Like that, that's really what I found too. Is like once I was a generalist for years and years and like, didn't get anywhere. And then when I chose to really commit and, you know, becoming sick with Hashimoto's was, was silver lining in a sense, because like it became really personal. So like I had to find solutions, but from a business standpoint, what was great about that was it really allowed me to to go really really deep and and um, you know be, become a person who could offer insight in that area. I think. Yeah, you're totally right. I think a lot of people want to do it all, and then they end up doing nothing. So it's better <laughs> to figure out what you're really drawn to, what you're good at, what you want to learn more about, and let that 
guide you and lead you. And just, yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes too, I think like people get worried that, oh, but if I do that, I won't be able to do something. Well, you know, not necessarily. Just try it for a while. It may, maybe that's not the niche that you'll ultimately end on, but you'll learn something in the process of committing to it. And then you can take that, you know, if you decided something else, you'll, you'll have that experience and, and that uh, ability to, to apply that to, to the next area. Yeah, totally right. Everything in life is a learning lesson. And if you just yeah. go through life thinking like whatever's happening is happening for you and not to you, and it's just guiding you, I think you'll be better able to find success that way. I totally agree. Now, one question that we love to ask all of our guests is if you could have tea with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, okay. I was wondering what that question was. Because it said tea with anyone. I was like, yeah, I'll have tea with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'll have tea with anyone. Wow. Dead or alive? Yeah. The like choice is yours. Lao who? Lao Tzu, the oh. of the Tao Te Ching. That would be amazing. Charles Bukowski, I think, is a fantastic character. I love his writing. I'd like to... Yeah, have tea with him. Probably beer or alcohol, though. We <laughs> you could um, spike your tea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, hot toddy. Yes, um, love a good hot toddy. Hmm. Well, Jean Luc Godard, I always think, is an interesting director. I'd like to have tea with him. A good one too. You picked three um, really interesting guests. Those would be my I like that. Three I could think yeah. of off the top of my head. Very interesting. Well, for anyone out there who's going to listen to this that wants to learn more about your work, potentially work with you, become a client of yours. If I'm ever in the area, I'm definitely coming to see you. Where are the best places to reach you at? And also, where is a good place to order your books? Yeah. So my books are published by Hay House, so you can find them at any book retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever. So look for those there. I have social media. I've been like kind of taking a hiatus from social media the last few months, but I'm about to come back with a bunch of new content that I've been working on. There so we go. I'll be there. Um, Instagram, I'm Hashimoto's Healer. On Facebook, it's uh, at Hashimoto's Healing. My website is uh, Hashimoto'sHealing.com. And, you know, you could, I'm pretty responsive. If you message me in any of those places, uh, I will respond. I mean, I get back to you immediately, but I will definitely answer. So if you have any, if any of your listeners have questions, I'm, I'm happy to answer them and share my expertise regardless. And I work now at a clinic in Silver Lake here in Los Angeles called the Universal Family Wellness Clinic. If you want to come see me for acupuncture and body work too, you're completely welcome to come there as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I think you should. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. A lot of clarity. I love clarity. I'm excited to see young people like you guys doing this and, and sharing this information and exploring this stuff. It's, it's really wonderful. Awesome. Thanks for joining us on our episode with Mark Ryan. Mark shared so much valuable information with us on Hashimoto's and overall wellness tips. As always, if you have any questions, please email us at podcast at drinkdowntoearth.com or get in touch with us on our Instagram at drinkdte. In the meantime, stay healthy and stay hydrated. Cheers. Now it's time for you to go out there and do at least one small thing to better your health today. Always choose to make your life a healthier, happier, and a more down-to-earth place. Until next time. Cheers to good health.